The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And nothing says rock and roll like ACDC, the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And nobody rocked harder than the late, great Bon Scott, their original singer. Many argue that ACDC is the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I know I do. And when it comes to the live performance, Bon Scott is one of the greatest frontmen in rock history. And that includes today's guest, author and ACDC fanatic, Jesse Fink. He's the author behind The Youngs, The Brothers Who Built ACDC, and more importantly, his new book, Bon, The Last Highway, the untold story of Bon Scott and ACDC's Back in Black. Jesse spent over two years writing and researching Bon's life and the mysteries surrounding Bon Scott's death on February 19, 1980. Jesse's going to share some of what he uncovered in his research, what he believes really happened the night Bon Scott died, and why the real circumstances of Bon's death may have been covered up. Jesse's also sharing the information he discovered that he thinks is proof that Bon Scott contributed to ACDC's Back in Black album, which was released five months after Bond died, even though the Young Brothers insisted Bond had nothing to do with the record. Why is that? We're going to find out. Jesse talked to many people who knew Bond very well, his family, former girlfriends and close friends. He spoke to Joe Fury, who was with Bond the night he died. Paul Chapman of UFO, who saw Bond that night as well. All the information is happening. We are rocking Bon Scott and ACDC with Jesse Fink coming up. But speaking of rocking, Fozzie is rocking O'Connor's in Clarksville, Tennessee. Coming up tonight, take the last train to Clarksville. The Judas Rising Tour 2018 back in full swing with Adelita's Way, Stone Broken, and The Stir. We're going to be in Springfield at the Branca Springfield Center, August 30th. That's my lovely wife's birthday. Uh, We're going to be playing uh, that night with uh, uh, all that remains, as a matter of fact. Uh, August 31st, Little Rock, Arkansas at the Revolution Music Room. Um, September 1st, we are going to be in Kansas City, just outside of it, Miriam, Kansas at Aftershock. And then September 2nd, it's a taste of Madison in Madison, Wisconsin. We're going to be all across America, Joliet, Omaha, Des Moines, Minneapolis, Fargo, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne. You can see all the dates all the way up to uh, September 29th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the Culture Room. You go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket information and VIP information to be a part of the greatest VIP in rock and roll today. We play a private mini concert just for you. We meet you, we greet you, take pictures, hang out. Uh, you're going to get your money's worth when you come to Fozzy VIP. Uh, you can do that. 
in Australia and New Zealand in Auckland at the studio on uh, November 7th. Melbourne and Sydney, the VIPs are sold out, but the shows are still available. Adelaide and Brisbane, 13 and 14. Go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket information. Then we're hooking up with Three Days Grace for a handful of dates on their Canadian tour. Moncton, uh, Halifax, Quebec City, and Montreal. So much going on. More Canadian dates to be added. FozzyRock.com. All the ticket information. All the VIP meet and greet information. FozzyRock.com. Go do it now. All right. Let's get to ACDC and the wild life and mysterious death of Bon Scott with Jesse Fink right here on Talk is Jericho. <laughs> So um, it's interesting. I read an article uh, in Classic Rock magazine from England about a couple months ago, and I'd already been reading the book. And the book is uh, Bon Scott, the, the Last Highway, uh, written by Jesse Fink, who's here right now, uh, calling all the way from uh, Sydney, Australia, which it's 2 a.m. there. That is correct, and uh, coffee is keeping me awake right now. Well, it seems apropos that a uh, podcast about Bon Scott should take place late at night. That seems. <laughs> but what's very interesting to me, after hearing so many kind of rumors and, and thoughts about Bon Scott's death and his involvement with ACDC after his death, and this book was perfect for me because you also wrote another book about the Young Brothers as well, correct? Yeah, I wrote a book called uh, The Youngs, The Brothers Who Built ACDC. Yes, and I read that one as well. That was about three or four years ago. And it was very, yeah. I've just recently have come to the conclusion after being a rock and roll fan for, you know, 40 odd years, that ACDC is the greatest rock and roll band of all time, but also one of the most mysterious in so many mm. different ways. And that started with, with the Young Brothers in the book that, that, you, that you wrote about them. Just kind of explain before we get into Bond, kind of the whole uh, hierarchy of ACDC. Obviously now Malcolm Young has passed away, but throughout the years, mm. a very strict society, Correct. Yeah, like someone sort of compared them to, um, you know, the Church of Scientology sort of being so secretive. Um, so penetrating that sort of inner sanctum of ACDC is a very difficult job for any biographer. So, I mean, I did both books without any cooperation whatsoever from from uh, the Young Brothers. But, uh, you know, definitely, you know, the Young family sort of ruled rule the roost and and bond was just another employee of the band and and i think we've seen recently you know with the way that sort of phil rudd was treated with the way brian johnson was treated that um you know bond was no different to them you kind of mentioned that in that book and that's where i really started realizing you know obviously the glamorous side is that oh angus young is the leader well obviously malcolm young was the leader of the band with his brother angus in tow but like you mentioned mm -hmm. with bond scott and mark evans the original bass player uh, tour managers, mm. managers, even Brian Johnson, uh, 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 Phil Rudd. When they're done with them, when the Young Brothers were finished, you were cut out from the family completely. Yeah, no, no sentiment whatsoever. And and the thing with with Bon Scott was that you know he was kind of running off the rails even before he died. So, you know, I think what was clear was that you know Bon was even aware that his own sort of job was on the line and it was causing him some stress. Because, like I said, kind of combining the two books, what you mentioned was, uh, I liked what you said, it was almost like a clan mentality uh, in that the, mm. young, the ACDC was basically run by Malcolm Young, Angus Young, and then George Young, who was their brother, which mm. incidentally, both of them passed away uh, earlier this year within weeks of each other or very, very close to each other. Was ACDC um, at the time now, 
Is there anyone else involved in that inner circle, a manager, an agent? Uh, is there anybody in there? Well, at the time, um, when when Bond died, uh, Lieber Krebs was, was running the show, which was, you know, uh, uh, David Krebs, Steve Lieber, uh, a very um, decorated yeah, famous. Uh, Amer- Amer- American management firm who handled Aerosmith and Ted Nugent. And really um, joining Lieber Krebs was a thing that kind of, you know, pushed ACDC to where they needed to be. And at the time, an employee of Lieber Krebs, a guy called Peter Mensch, who, who now runs Metallica, yeah. was was running ACDC. Um, and it was really joining Lieber Krebs that kind of um, took them where they needed to get to. And um you know, look what happened with Back and Black. Well, and if you're talking about, you know, um, letting band members go, for example, I know one of the famous stories from Iron Maiden, obviously Steve Harris running that camp with him and Rod Smallwood with a with a iron hand. When, when Clive Burr was too much of a drinker, they basically let him go because he was hindering the success and possible next uh, ascension of the band. When you're talking about Bon Scott in 1979 going to 1980, looking back now, they weren't rich they weren't huge they were just on the cusp it's easy for us now to say acdc is huge but when highway to hell came out they were still a growing band is that correct absolutely so you know like one of the sort of amazing sort of eureka moments i had while researching the book was that i found the probate of bon scott uh, in the supreme court of new south wales so like an inventory of all his assets when he died Mm. and and it listed that bon only had just over $31,000 in assets Wow! Uh, when he died. You know, so when you think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that have sort of gone through to the Young family over the years, and that Bond died with only just over $30,000 to his name is extraordinary. Absolutely. But like I said, we're putting ourselves back in the time frame when Highway to Hell first came out because, you know, I'm 47 years old, so I've heard of ACDC probably – around 1980-81 when it was all about back and black and you might have heard a little bit of highway to hell because it was so controversial like in 1981 a song called highway to hell and an album called highway to hell with these creepy looking guys and one of them is wearing a school suit and holding horns up it was a little bit scary so dc was not the household name that they are now they were they were on their way but no one knew exactly just how big they were going to be no, and the fu- and the funny thing is, you know, um, you know, there are parts of the world where you know Bon Scott is not, really not even on people's radar. It's sort of um, their knowledge of ACDC um, begins uh, with with Back and Black. So you know, there's a whole sort of core of ACDC's fan base who see Brian Johnson as the singer of ACDC, and that was something uh, that. I think is very different from Australia, where Bon Scott is sort of regarded as a sort of a living god. Well, and it's also true to the point of I think. Uh, oh, sorry, a, 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 not a living god, but you know what I mean. Well, uh, I understand. He's a, a, uh, a legendary, godlike, you know, uh, hero of rock and roll. Yeah, he's assumed this this you know incredible um, place in our in our culture, um, mythology. In the, yeah, and our mythologies, you know, since his death. Yeah, definitely. Because if you talk, like once again, here we are, 40 years of ACDC, a lot of people will say, well, Bon Scott is still the best singer in ACDC, even though Brian just finished up a 36-year stint, still as an employee of ACDC, might I add, if that's correct from what you're saying. But still, when Axel came in, I think a lot of people liked him because he embodies the spirit 
of Bon Scott, the original and true singer of ACDC, even all these years later? I think Axel would probably like to think he does. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think the reality is probably a little bit different. But, um, you know, look, credit to him for for having a a crack at all those sort of Bon Scott era songs. You know, I think it's great to, to hear them coming back. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this. Obviously, you're from Australia. You're a big ACDC fan. But what is it that led you to, A, write a book about the Youngs and then continue that uh, by writing a book about Bon Scott? Because like you said, this is all done unauthorized. Uh, I'm sure you probably tried many times to get a hold of somebody in the ACDC camp, but, but you never really did. So tell us the whole process, how you started writing this book and how you were able to write it without the Youngs' permission. Um, well, going back to about 2012, I, I wrote a book called Laid Bare, which was released in Australia, which was about um, the end of my first marriage. Mm. And, and you know, it was a very sort of horrible period for me and I was, you know, completely sort of off the rails and, you know, dating too many women and just, you know, didn't hadn't got my life sort of in order and, you know, sort of during that journey, I guess I had sort of reached a, a real low point where I felt, you know, quite suicidal. I didn't really want to go on. And there was just like this one night where I was sorting black socks on the end of my bed at 4 a.m. in the morning thinking, how much worse can my life get than, than what it is now? And I just happened to put on some power rage and it kind of just lifted me out of this total funk. Right. And... I don't know why it sort of just sort of, you know, appeared on my MacBook at that moment, but it was, it was like, you know, the ACDC just had this completely restorative kind of um, effect on me and sort of, you know, the following day I would, you know, just went jogging, I worked out to ACDC and I just got this incredible lift from it. And I thought, well, if ACDC has had this effect on me, maybe that explains, you know, why ACDC is so huge around the world. And right. And, you know, what is it about ACDC that connects to so many people? So I remember uh, seeing a picture of like a, a Buddhist monk, I think it was in like, it was in India, I think, you know, of this, of this Buddhist monk with like an ACDC, ACDC t-shirt under his robes. And, you know, that sort of picture <laughs> sort of, <laughs> sort of uh, you know, illustrated to me just how far and wide, you know, this, this band connects with people. And, you know, you go to Brazil and, and ACDC is so massive there, as is Iron Maiden. I mean, there's a real a real appreciation for, for heavy rock, certainly in South America. And when you look at, you know, the spread of Australian rock, you know, certainly ACDC is right at the top. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, a fairly patriotic Australian. I wanted really just to celebrate this fantastic band, and I didn't think that any of the books that had sort of being released about them had sort of done what I was trying to do, which was to explain how the music connects emotionally to people. And as I, you know, started uh, writing this this book about the Young Brothers, you know, I, I would get in touch with people like on Facebook where there's a very healthy ACDC fan community. And you would hear stories of, of people who had sort of hit rock bottom, who didn't have a lot in life, who were searching for some sort of meaning and they had found it in ACDC. And so, you know, we were kind of all bonded by this, by these similar stories and by the love of this band. And so, you know, for me, it was sort of a great honor to write that book. It was written as a tribute really to, to ACDC. I wanted to kind of uh, sort of explain, you know, why it is that ACDC connects to people. But of course the book contained, 
um, various criticisms of the Young Brothers as, as a sort of a business unit. And But I didn't want that to take away from what it was uh, essentially, which was, you know, love letter to the band. Well, it's interesting, so, it's interesting that you say, sorry. just as a quick, ACDC really is the ultimate party band. I mean, you could put that on uh, in the middle of a rap concert. You could put it on in the middle of a ska concert. Uh, old people, young people, anywhere in between. ACDC kind of bridges the gap. Like, if you're having a party and you don't know what kind of music to play, you could put on ACDC and everybody would enjoy uh, parts of it or enjoy all of it. So I get what you're saying about all that and agree with you a thousand percent. Continue. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and. I can't remember who it was, but, you know, someone said, uh, you know, you should be all night long is, you know, played in strip clubs all around the world. I mean, it's a stripper's anthem, you know? Yeah, like? you're right, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, there, so there is this party band side to ACDC, but it's also an, is this incredible business colossus. And, and that's a whole other side of the story, which is, you know, what part of the book was really exploring, which is the power of the ACDC brand. And, uh, you know, that, those, those four letters, that logo is a very, very powerful thing and it's a very lucrative thing. So that's part of the story too. And, and that book came out and it was, you know, very successful and really, I mean, there were a lot of people who sort of came to me after that book and said, oh, you hate the Young Brothers, you know, this, you, you've, you've written this to kind of take ACDC down, which is, which is not true at all. But a lot of them would say, you know, you're just a Bon Scott fan. You hate Brian Johnson, yada, yada, yada. And I don't hate Brian Johnson, but I love Bon Scott. And I guess, you know, when I think about it, all the ACDC music I love really was kind of released between, um, you know, 1975 and 1980. And so the Bon Scott period for me was still relatively unexplored. And I realized that actually didn't really know that much about Bon Scott beyond the kind of the cartoon figure that, you know, is portrayed in various documentaries and is, um, you know, the subject of various festivals around the world. It's, it's this kind of cliched character, you know, right. this sort of hard drink, hard drinking, hard womanizing, you know, um, live for the day kind of figure that really is a caricature, you know, it, it's not the real person. And I thought, well, why not try and you know write a a full length biography of this of this guy because he's he's certainly um, deserving of a big book and and before I started there had only really been uh, sort of one attempt at writing a biography of, of Bon Scott which is a, a book called Highway to Hell which was written back in 1994 by a guy called Clinton Walker mm-hmm. uh, an Australian writer which was a good book. And, you know, he wrote about the death of Bon Scott, which to this day is still, a, you know, a very mysterious uh, set of circumstances. Yeah. And initially my focus when I, when I first went to my, my publisher here in Australia, Random House, was let's do a book about Bon Scott in America. So, you know, from 1977 to 79, from the first concert to the last concert. And so really – it was it was born on the road in America. That was for me. That was what I was trying to put together. But the more I got into it, the more I realised I could not avoid the death of Bon Scott. And in the end, the final part of the book, you know, uh, parts four and five uh, of the book, which sort of deals with the death and the aftermath of Bon Scott, ended up taking me two years just wow. writing that alone, because it was just a complete rabbit hole. Um, and so confusing. Uh, and 
I had to start putting all these pieces together, uh, which didn't make any sense. And eventually they did start making some sense. You know, um, just a couple of things that you touched upon just for people's background. When you mentioned just the juggernaut of ACDC and you, you also mentioned Iron Maiden, I was having uh, dinner with Rod Smallwood a few years ago and I asked him, you know, who's bigger than Iron Maiden? You know, and he said, well, there's, you know, Springsteen and Stones and he goes, you know, the Metallica, some places they're bigger. Most of the places were bigger. But he said to me, I stay up at night trying to figure out how we can become bigger than ACDC. He goes, that's the biggest rock and roll <laughs> band. And they dwarf Iron Maiden. And I was like, okay, well, there you go. So that's Ross Smallwood's goal. Um, and also, yeah. too, I would also venture to say that there isn't one bad Bon Scott song on all of those records. And I think uh, Back in Black is the last ACDC record that was perfect as far as every song is great. Because once, once Bond passed away, they did lose a little bit of kind of the mysticism and witticism and pirate mentality of Bon Scott and his lyrics. So um, I agree with you on those accounts as well. When you're talking about Bon Scott and writing this book, I do want to find out first and foremost, did you try and go to the Youngs and the ACDC camp? And what was the reaction that you got, if any, when you uh, reached out to them? Yeah, look, over the years I've made uh, a couple of attempts to kind of connect with the young camp, but nothing. And the closest I really got to, you know, the sort of the current form of the band or the recent form of the band was Phil Rudd, oh. who, who I spoke to on the phone and who had actually agreed to sort of do a full interview. And I set it up through his attorney in New Zealand and – but when we when he got on the phone, he just sort of suddenly changed his tune and and sort of it was like he just did a, did a complete about face. Really? Yeah. So that was that was kind of really weird. But he knew about he knew about the first book, and he asked me to send him a copy, and <laughs> it was kind of a a very strange conversation. <laughs> but you know, it was over fairly quickly, and uh, but that that but that was as close as I got really. So I've had no contact with Brian Johnson or Cliff Williams. But, uh, you know, Mark Evans was involved with the first book. You know, I've had, you know, really positive comments from, you know, David Krebs, you know, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. who was, was, uh, who's been fantastic to me. Phil Carson, who was the vice president of Atlantic Records, uh, has been a supporter of my work. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've had, uh, you know, very good reactions to it, certainly from, from people who have worked with ACDC. Why do you think that Phil changed his tune uh, last minute like that? I think at the time he was probably still thinking that he had a chance to get back into ACDC. Ah, oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So the yeah. less said, the better in that case, right? Yeah, that's right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Before we delve into a little bit more specifics of this book, there's a great story that you have kind of as the uh, intro to the Bond book where you were kind of sitting in your car. Tell that story because I thought it was really cool, A, the story, and B, your reaction to it. <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, I had gone and written this entire book about the Young family and had no contact with them whatsoever. 
uh, apart from Ross Young, who was Malcolm's son, right? who I met in a pub in Sydney and told me that his family had sort of read the book and, you know, were okay with it and everything. Yeah, I was sitting in a car with my father and a friend of his in Sydney and, you know, Malcolm Young was walking towards us, <laughs> um, you know, out of the blue. And he was walking with a sort of a young Pacific Islander man. And this was, you know, Malcolm um, in the throes of dementia. Wow. You know, and, and looking very frail and old. And, you know, I was there thinking, oh, you know, I've written a, a book about this bloke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I want to meet him. You know, I'd love to go up to him and shake his hand and say thank you for changing my life and thank you for, you know, the music. But then I thought, I think it's inappropriate of me to have that contact with him. And certainly when he's in that condition, and would he even know who I am? And I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So it was this kind of very awkward moment where, you know, I had every urge in my body to go up to Malcolm, but, you know, my morality was telling me not to go. You know, that's, that's pretty cool, though, man. I mean, uh, I had the uh, fortune of meeting Keith Richards once years, uh, a few years ago and spending some time with him, and then later on saw him again <laughs> in the bathroom of where we were. And I was like, should I keep talking? I was like, no, you know, I'm just going to leave him yeah, alone. Yeah. You know, I had my moment, and now I would become that annoying guy. So I just kind of yeah. just let it go. And like you said, I think that's pretty cool that you did that, especially seeing Malcolm in that state. So let's talk about, I mean, and obviously the, the, that was something that just happened recently. When you're going back into – you know, 77, 70, 79. And we mentioned earlier at the beginning of this how when ACDC deemed you expendable and Malcolm deemed you expendable, you were gone and out for good. What was Bond's stature in the band? And let's start going through some of that stuff that you were finding out that started basically when, when ACDC hit the States and ended when he, he ended up dying in, in February of 1980. Well, I mean, they started their American Odyssey in... Uh... Texas in July 1977, and they probably ended up playing about 450 shows by the end of 1979, and that sort of included some European shows and British shows. But, I mean, that's like a staggering amount of shows. Um, but, you know, you can even see if, you, if you're, you know, diligent enough in your, your online research, you can go to YouTube and just sort of watch videos of, Bond from the end of 1979, where he doesn't look and he doesn't sound good, yeah. and you can you can sort of see this sort of physical and and uh, oral kind of uh, deterioration of Bond Scott over that period. Mm -hmm. Physically, he changes a lot. I mean, in 1978, he was at his peak. He was just this incredible, uh, sinewy, fit. Is that kind know, of when he had shorter hair too? Yeah, 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 you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? So yeah. he, he looked incredible. He was the kind of, you know, like a, you know, like a bar fighter, you know. Yeah. For me, that's the image of, you know, you know, the Bond legend it was was him in 1978. Just, just, just all muscle and sinew. And, and by the end of 1979. And sex appeal as well. He was definitely sex, the sex, sex appeal. appeal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And even David Krebs says in the book, he says, you know, like, Bond had all the sex appeal in that band, which yeah. I completely agree with. Um, and so by the end of 1979, you know, he'd started to put on a little bit of weight. There was a little bit of fat sort of creeping over the top of his jeans. He didn't sound so good. Um, there was some some uh, sort of TV appearances where, 
um, you know, his voice was kind of giving out and you can tell by the end. I and mean, his eyes looked a, a bit glazed over as well. I mean, I, I get uh, messages all the time from people on social media saying, oh, have you watched this video? You know, just look at his eyes. You can tell that he's right. under the influence of something. And, and you know, I, I, I don't think that those videos lie. I mean, you can tell. Well, so, it's similar to when you look at the you know latter day pictures of Jim Morrison or Keith Moon. These are really good looking guys, but towards the end of their life, they started looking ten, fifteen, twenty years older than they really were from all the damage they'd done. Yeah, that's right. But you know, like Bond, you know, four hundred and fifty shows, and he's probably you know polishing off a couple of bottles, yeah, a day or whatever, doing copious amounts of coke, doing heroin, doing quaaludes. You know, yeah. shagging any, anything that moves. I mean, it was a fairly kind of full-on lifestyle. And and the the other side of that was he was you know dealing with his own own demons, and he was a, a depressed person a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing that really sort of came through for me uh, while writing the book was you know talking to the women in his life and and kind of you know hearing from them how you know Bond really kind of thought that he was. I was, sorry, not didn't think that he was, but he he was sort of just playing up to a role. Yeah, and, and the role that he was asked to play really wasn't um, wasn't him. It wasn't the true Bon Scott. But by the end of that that kind of persona that he had adopted had kind of uh, become a trap for him, and the band itself had become a trap for him. And so I think he dealt with that by drinking and by um, using drugs. Well, who was the true Bon Scott? I think the true Bon Scott was probably more of a of the Bond that was in um, uh, Fraternity, which was the other band that he was in from Australia, a bunch of hippies, you know, uh-huh. and and Silver Smith, who was really the the love of Bond's uh, love of Bond's life, who I got to speak with before she died, you know, the series of interviews, which I was very very lucky to get. Yeah, she said that uh, you know Bon really found ACDC to be a cultural desert and that, you know, when he was with her, it was his release from that, you know, that he was he was into literature, he was reading Doris Lessing, you know, he loved Joseph Conrad, he would go to art galleries, he listened to completely different music. I mean, finding out that, that Bon Scott was a Steely Dan fan, it was just like, wow. Uh, you, yeah. know? <laughs> you know, like I love Steely Dan, but it's like not something that you emit in the hard rock crowd. You know, well, but, uh, once yeah. again, though, like you said, he's playing this role and playing this part and it does catch up to you. Maybe he loves Steely Dan and then wearing, I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking through some pictures here of Bon Scott in 1979. There's a couple pictures of him wearing like a flowery, almost Hawaiian shirt. I'm sure that yeah, wasn't yeah. really looked uh, looked upon too well, but he was probably expected to drink and smoke and be the life of the party and try and go after all the girls. And, hey, that's fun sometimes, but seven nights a week after a gig, it does take its toll. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, and there's a sort of a key narrative arc in, in the book, really, because it begins with the first show in, in Austin, Texas, and he meets this this young guy called Roy Allen, who was an alcoholic. Right. Uh, a bit of a tear away and he has this this friendship with Roy over the years which is documented in the book and it kind of ends really at, at, in in 1979 with a phone call from from Bond to Roy from a hotel room in in France with Bond saying you know I just can't hack it anymore I can't do this anymore to myself I need to 
to uh, to dry out. I need some help. I need to sort of stop for a, for a bit. And I think Bond was was looking for help, but he wasn't getting it, and or didn't think that he could ask for it within the band. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's often said, you know, you 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 see those sort of you know behind the music documentaries and ultimate albums and where you know the great tragedy of of ACDC is that Bond didn't live to see the success of Back in Black. No, the the great tragedy of of ACDC is that Bond didn't get the help that he needed when he needed it. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and it seems once again, too, that throughout the course, uh, and as we get, you know, as we we talk further about, you know, towards his death and stuff, that Angus and Malcolm are kind of like, well, it's just Bond, par for the course. It's just how he is. Instead of saying you need to stop being how you are and, and... get some help, it's almost like that was just expected of him from everybody in the camp. Well, you know, people forget too that Malcolm Young actually walked away from the band yeah. um, around in 1988 to kind of dry out and get help. That's right. You know? Yeah, but Bond didn't, have that, Bond didn't have that chance, and unfortunately I think he was a sort of a victim of, of the times. And, and for me, it was like a really helpful interview, but I, I went to meet Mick Jones from Foreigner in New York who you know quite openly admitted he was an alcoholic and had had been a drug addict and and it was sort of getting this you know perspective of someone who you know was in a rock band who you know was sort of freely using you know alcohol and, and cocaine and getting to a point where you know it was taking over his life and and sort of comparing that with Bon and and you know there were there were certain parallels between Mick Jones and Bon, and bon Scott which you wouldn't think were there but uh, they were there and and uh you know mick mick said you know bond i think unfortunately was um you know a victim of uh the time which was that you know um rehab just wasn't a thing at that point you know people weren't seeking help like they were in the 80s and you know i think had bond sort of you know got through to the early 80s, uh, one, I think he would have left ACDC, but two, he would have got the help that he needed. Would he have left or would he, would he have been asked to leave? I think he would have left, for sure. Why do you say that? I just think he was interested in different music. I think he'd had enough of it, you know, and he found it sort of creatively limiting. And, and the thing that Silver Smith kept on saying was that, you know, Bond would come up with even more clever lyrics to the songs that he was writing, but they would get censored by the young. Well, you know, and it's one of those things, too, where you hear about all this stuff all the time with Randy Rhodes, for example, passing away in 82. And how Ozzy said he probably would have left the band within the next year and a half. You never know for sure. And the patterns show that. I mean, even up to this, you know, last year when Brian Johnson suffered his hearing problems, the rumor before that was that Brian wanted to retire. And as soon as that happened, the youngs were like, "Okay, well, then you're gone because we're not retiring. Mm. And I think even mm-hmm. more so when Malcolm started going down, he probably told Angus, listen, if you continue on without me, you continue on without anybody else. You do it the way you want to do it. So it seems that they would have went on without Bond and maybe not even batted an eye if they thought he was becoming a detriment if the alcohol was affecting his gig and all that other stuff. And was alcohol affecting Bond Scott's gigs? Did he ever miss shows? Or or you mentioned earlier that he was having some vocal issues. Was it ever getting embarrassing? Yeah, there was a there was a show apparently in in Warwick in Rhode Island that was like a complete train wreck, where it had to end early because Bond was so pissed that you know he was right. sort of falling over and you know crashing into sort of uh, stage equipment. So 
and this was from someone who was there. But yeah, I mean, uh, as I said to you before, you can just watch some videos of, I think it is a, a, a performance in Germany right at the end of 1979 where he just sounds really bad. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was affecting the shows, but I mean, Bond was also, you know, he was a fairly, uh, fairly dedicated person. So even if he was, you know, as rough as guts, he still got up there and did as, as best as he could. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about um, the last, you know, few weeks and months of his life. Um... Because you, you said it, and, and there's a very controversial, almost conspiratory uh, uh, selection of issues and events that happened surrounding the death of Bond Scott. Mm. So, so where does it all begin as far as the beginning of the end for Bond? Um, was it something that was spiraling over the course of a few months? Or was it just one night in the midst of many? Give us some of that story. Well... Uh, I guess, you know, one thing really I wanted to do with the book was kind of point out that, you know, this this, this fateful night in, in the Bon Scott story, which is, you know, the 18th to the 19th of February 1980, didn't happen in isolation. There was a road to that point. Hmm. And Bon, really, he, his drug taking started picking up a notch. You know, uh, certainly around uh, 1979, the end of 1979, and the women that I spoke to who were involved with Bond, people in Miami, said that his his drug intake was you know huge, and and they even sort of one of them actually sort of felt quite guilty about it that they had introduced Bond to you know quaaludes and coke. Yeah. But when he got to London, of course, the, the drug of choice among rock musicians at that time was, was heroin. Mm-hmm. And, and Bond was sort of moving in heroin circles at that time. So the, the story that, you know, I think a lot of people were familiar with was uh, about Alastair Kinnear, about uh, Bond going out with Alastair, Alastair Kinnear on his last night, going to a music, the Music Machine Club in Camden. Uh, consuming seven double whiskeys, passing out in the car, and and you know you know the rest of the story. Right, chokes on his own vomit was always the uh, yeah yeah. Or yeah. or Rosie Osborne said that you know he died of hypothermia. Yeah, froze know. to death. Right. Yeah, I mean there there are all various sort of uh, stories about how Bond came to his end, but it all involves sort of Alastair Kinnear and and seven double whiskeys. Mm-hmm. And then a few years ago, uh, 2005 actually, there was a story in Classic Rock. You mentioned Classic Rock magazine. Yeah. There was a story by Jeff Barton in, in Classic Rock where he interviewed uh, Pete Way and Paul Chapman of UFO. Right. And Paul Chapman said that Bond had been with him and a man called Joe Fury, who was Bond's friend, um, at Chapman's flat in um, Fulham. Okay. the night before, and that Bond had gone off to buy some heroin and they were waiting for Bond to return. 
and they waited until the early morning when Joe Fury left Chapman's apartment and Bond never came to the apartment and then and Joe Fury called Paul Chapman not long after having left the apartment and that this was the morning of the 19th and said Bond's dead. Okay, so you've got a story where um, Joe Fury and Paul Chapman find out that Bond is dead on the morning of the 19th but then you have another story where Alastair Kinnear is going down to his car outside his flat on the evening of the 19th and finding Bond dead. Okay, so one story is Bond dead in the morning. The other story is Bond dead in the evening. Huh. Right? So (laughs) they don't kind of match up, right? Yeah. And Clinton Walker, who I mentioned earlier, had written a book about uh, Bond back in 1994, did a, did a re- revised version of his book in 2015 where he kind of sort of dismissed the, the Chapman story. And Chapman called Pete Way, got a number for ACDC, and that was how ACDC had found out about Bond Scott being dead. Right. Um, and, you know, Clinton Walker didn't actually deal with, with the Chapman version of events, right, and kind of dismissed it and said, look, you know, he'd done the hard yards in the music business and, you know, was a heroin user, blah, 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 blah. And I thought there's got to be more to it. So a, a challenge that I set myself was really kind of uh, reconciling these, these two different strands of the story and trying to make them kind of uh, make sense when you put them together. And that's what I think I ended up doing in the book. And certainly I don't come to a d- d- definitive conclusion. I come up with sort of two theories about what might have happened, but they certainly both involve uh, you know, Bond snorting a line apparently. And what's interesting is that since the book came out, I've been contacted by various people who uh, were involved in the in the London heroin scene. Uh, one person who said uh, that he knew Alistair was actually a dealer of high-grade heroin. So if Bond was going off to buy heroin, well, Alistair Kinnear would be the person that he contacted. Hmm, okay. So, and that's something that's not really publicized, too. The, the, once again, it's almost the romantic rock and roll death where guy chokes on his own vomit like we said but now you're saying there could have been some heroin involved in a heroin overdose which takes takes things in a completely different uh, direction as well yeah well you know one one it's a theory that, that that i come to is that if 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 bond died on the morning of the 19th and alistair knew about bond being dead on the morning of the 19th but he didn't want uh the heroin to be detectable in in bond's blood well certainly he would delay going to the hospital as long as possible, mm-hmm. right? Well, absolutely, um, yeah. And so that that was one, you know one theory I kind of you know uh, work on in the book is is that that Alistair actually knew that Bond was dead very early on the morning of the nineteenth, but left him in the car or he was left in the flat for as long as possible. And in in writing the book, I even found a third person who was with Bond and Alistair. I mean, so. You know, how good was the police investigation at the time? If, you know, 37 years later, I mean, I wrote this in 2017, if 37 years later I can find another person who was at the flat with Bond and Alistair. I mean, the police investigation was a joke. But why? Why was it such a joke? I don't know. You tell me. Why, <laughs> why, was, it, why, was, it, why was it wrapped up so quickly? Why was, you know, why has there been no toxic, toxicology report released, you know? Do you think they were trying um, to hide the heroin aspect of it? If there was one? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's not a good look for the band for their 
for their singer to be succumbing to a, to a heroin overdose. It's 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 a far more palatable thing, and it certainly serves the mythology of ACDC yeah. to uh, to reinforce this idea that he died and he went out doing what he loved best, which was drinking. Which is also yeah. kind of the whole, you know, uh, uh, mo of the band: have a drink on me. You know what I mean? It's a rock and roll, ACDC. Have some drinks and, and and listen to some tunes. Not go out there and stick a needle in your arm, you know, and and be a junkie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the the way that Bond would have used the heroin was certainly, you know, snorting the uh, brown heroin. So there were no needles involved. But gotcha. I mean, the thing is, the thing is with with the whole heroin thing is that. It's such a such a taboo word, heroin, you know, yes. and and it just sort of raises the hackles of people immediately, and and they think that by me even even sort of mentioning Bond in the same breath as heroin, that I'm calling him a junkie. I'm not calling him a junkie. I mean, heroin was everywhere in the rock scene in London at that time, and people were snorting it left, right, and centre. You know, Bond was would have just had a line, you know, a casual line here and there, and he was certainly moving um among uh the heroin crowd i mean everyone as, as i list in the book everyone that he was with that night everyone who was in bond's orbit that night was involved in some way um in the heroin scene in london and like you said so the idea that he that he that he wasn't seeing heroin during the course of his day is just absolutely preposterous what you're saying is that, that time frame would be the same thing as snorting a line of cocaine for example just somebody has some and you snort it well, Pete Way from UFO, you know, he said that, you know, he, one idea he had was that, you know, Bond had done a speedball, which is a right. you know, coke and heroin. But anyway, the, the, the thing was that uh, there was this whole side of the, the, the death story of Bond that really hadn't been properly examined. So, and, and that was the, the UFO side of things. And so I went out of my way to, to talk to Paul Chapman and Pete Way who were both fantastic to talk to, um, very open. And then I matched that up with new interviews with Silver Smith and Joe Fury. Joe Fury was Bond's Australian friend, who was the guy that Paul Chapman said that he was with. And Joe Fury said that he wasn't at Paul Chapman's flat. So someone's, you know, not telling the truth. But I, I come to the conclusion that, you know, Bond definitely did a, did a line of heroin or snorted a line of heroin. Was it a bad? Was it a bad batch or something? Why would that have killed him? No, I don't think it was a bad batch. But you have to also remember that I think he just had a low tolerance for it. And you've yeah. got to remember that when I wrote the first book, Mark Evans, the bass player from ACDC, said that the Youngs had come close to sacking Bond after he'd had a heroin overdose in 1975 in Melbourne, Australia. Oh wow! Gotcha. You know so. And then, and then Michael Browning, who was the manager of ACDC at that time in 1976, said that he had a second overdose of heroin. So there was there was a pattern there. So yeah. my my feeling is that it was the you know third time unlucky for Bond. And yet, like you said, the story. Well, it's first of all the Aussie story that he died of hypothermia, and that's one that I've heard quite a few times as well. Please uh, debunk that story. Well, I mean, I actually went to the London meteorological archive <laughs> and you know contacted them and said tell me what their weather was actually that day and they said well the weather was actually above average and it's Feb um, it's february 19th so you're thinking well it's the dead of winter but you're saying uh, they said they told you it was above average right 
Yeah, well, so so you know this this idea that it was it was freezing cold and you know Bond you know froze to death. The, they came back to me and said that there was no frost and that the, the the temperatures were above average and certainly there was it was not um, conditions conducive to dying of hypothermia. So I think we can sort of eliminate that. No frost meaning no ice and no snow. So it's above zero. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> um, and then the other theory was that he died from choking on his own vomit. I think vomit was involved, but it was after he had had, had the heroin overdose. So he overdosed first, died, and threw up kind of as he was dying, or what are you saying? I'm saying that there would they, he would have probably started chucking up as he was overdosing on the heroin, yeah. Gotcha. Because that was kind of the, the word on the street and talking about how Bond had had a motorcycle accident and it kind of messed up his throat as, to begin yeah, with yeah, his yeah. neck, and there was, he was a, a, a prime candidate for it or whatever it may be. Because that was, that was the company line from, from the Young Brothers as well, correct? Yeah, yeah that's correct, yeah. And certainly something that, you know, the thing is, if you go back through all the various interviews about, you know, how Bond died, I mean, there, there are various things are said at various times and it's not always the same story. So, you know, and I, and I sort of bring up, you know, various quotes that have been said over the years and they're not always consistent. Well, um, so when Bond dies, I mean, it's a huge shock, you know, and, and then ACDC goes and, and gets Brian Johnson in. The other rumor for years, and you address it quite, quite extensively in the book, is is how much input did Bond have on Back in Black? Obviously, DC's biggest record, one of the biggest sellers of all time, if not the biggest. And the ACDC once again uh, line is that he had nothing to do with it, but that might not be the truth. No, so uh, you know. It had always been a, a feeling of mine. That I had always had a feeling about the song "You Shook Me All Night Long." Uh-huh. It just felt like a Bon Scott song. It just had the kind of the the pace and the rhythm and the the swing of a, of a Bon Scott song. Lyrically, uh, double yeah, on, lyrically, double entendres, very sexual. Yeah, and just a and a, just a cracking chorus. You know, like Bon was, you know, the king of choruses, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, I said to you earlier that, you know, I was writing this this book about Bond in America, 1977 to 79, and I'd hit various roadblocks in my research for the book and, and uh, you know, was having a fairly tough time kind of putting it all together. And I had a, a like a map of America and I was kind of plotting where the band played. And I thought, well, you know, one way of doing this is I can start contacting disc jockeys at FM stations in those cities, right? Right. Because if, if ACDC was passing through one of those cities on tour, you know, chances are they went into a re- uh, recording studio and did an interview and they met the local DJ or whatever. Yeah. So I would go through old billboards and I would find out, you know, who was the DJ, you know, on the morning show or the afternoon show or whatever at this radio station in the city. And then and, and I would have contacted, you know, a hundred DJs. Um, and said, you know, have you got any stories? Did you meet the band or whatever? And, you know, half a dozen DJs had pretty good stories. And one of them was a guy called Neil Mursky down in Florida who not only had a, a recording of, of Bond that he'd done in Orlando that had never been released, but he, and he gave that to me, which was amazing. Um, but he introduced me to a guy called Michael Fazolari from a, a punk band called Critical Mass, who I'd never heard of, um, that Bond had been hanging out with 
during the rehearsals for Highway to Hell in Miami. And Michael was this incredibly entertaining, funny guy and a very talented musician. And they released a record with MCA back in 1980. Michael sort of told me about, you know, the weeks that he'd spent with Bond, just, you know, driving around Miami, you know, going back to his hotel room, um, rehearsing, you know, fantastic stories. And he said, you know, his girlfriend lives here too, you know. And he introduced me to this woman called Holly X. She's got the name Holly X in the book. She didn't want to use her real name. And so I went from New York to Miami, went down to meet her, and she met me at Amtrak Station. For some reason, I took the train. I don't know why, but <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, you get to see the country that way. But um, she met me at the station, took, I went and stayed with her for a few days, and she proceeded to tell me this sort of amazing story of, of her relationship with Bon Scott. And she's, she's a very beautiful woman. Uh-huh. And they had first met in 1977 in New York, where she was a promo girl. Um, and there's actually pictures of her with Bon backstage at the Palladium in 1977. And there's like this little sort of ACDC patch on her jeans. And that same ACDC patch was in her house in Miami. And she showed me a card that had Bon's signature on it. And she told me about or these, these, these sort of days that she would spend with Bond sort of hanging out with her horse who was called Double Time, right? Ah. Now, yeah, right? And she shows me a picture of Double Time and says, you know, Bond really loved my horse. And, of course, this, you know, light bulb is going off in my head, thinking <laughs> it cannot be a coincidence, right? Double Time on the on the seduction line. Seduction line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right from Shikmalit uh, Long. Yeah, yeah. So, and and then she shows me a picture of her in a bikini. I mean, my God, she was just this, you know, God-given creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With real American thighs, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I think, God, geez, you know, I'm starting to see this. And she said, well, you know, I asked her about You Shook Me All Night Long. She said, yeah. You know, Bon wrote that song. And she said that, you know, he was humming the... um, humming the melody and she said that the the line about sightless eyes was originally chartreuse eyes where you know he turned to her outside the the newport hotel in miami while they were sort of lying by the pool and said you know you have chartreuse eyes green eyes Mm. and she said you know obviously that was too clever for um (laughs) that's incredible i mean and just the other one to me was is from highway to hell uh sorry of uh hell's bells if God is to the left, I'm sticking to the right. I mean, that's such a yeah, Bon well, Scott style. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you say that because yeah. I I think that too. And it's just it's got Bon written all over it. Sure, it does, and less so many more. You're giving the dog a bone and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I'm sure this is the eternal question. Why would the Why would the Young Brothers not want to glorify that? You know, it seems that. It would be super cool after Bond's dead. This is the last record with some songs contributed to by Bond Scott. Um, before I answer that, I'll, I'll just say also, um, you know, too many women with too many pills. Oh, yeah. yeah you're no kidding, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, shoot, shoot the thrill. The thrill. Yeah. What's Brian Johnson singing about pills for? 
And dude, right. I mean, rock and roll ain't noise pollution. I mean, that's total, like, it ain't no fun waiting around to be a millionaire. Just this weird kind of statement that's like, okay, kind of makes sense, but doesn't really. But that's total Bon Scott all across the board. Yeah, and, and Back in Black, which is, when you think about it, is not a memorial song. It's a song about money, which is what Bon was coming into finally. Right. You see? Yeah, in the black, right? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So it's all over the record. You know, there's, it just, it just, so for me, you know, meeting Holly X was kind of just like unlocking this, this secret. Right. And that was that, you know, it was ex- examining the lyrics themselves and thinking, well, so if Bon actually had something to do with the lyrics, there had to be a story behind it. Because what Bon always did with his songs was that he was writing about his life. Yeah. Right. And when you think about when Brian Johnson came into the band, you know, he had just been, you know, living up in Newcastle, um, um, working in, in, in the vinyl roof business. Yeah. You know? and, and, and also, too, like none of those lyrics on any of the other records from For Those About to Rock onward. I know that the Youngs kind of took him off writing lyrics at all after I think it was after the uh, uh, he uh, blew up your video record. So, you know, it's one of those things if he had written it before he would have written those style of lyrics afterwards. I don't think it was in him because Bon Scott was a poet, you know, as much as a lascivious, you know, uh, drunkard type of a guy. He still had such a way with lyrics on every Mm. ACDC record. So once again, let me ask you the question, why wouldn't Angus and Malcolm want to glorify that and promote it rather than hide it completely? Well, uh, you know, I've I've mentioned David Krebs a few times. David said, he he said, you know, there's there's no way in the world that you know Bond wasn't involved lyrically in that album, which is a, a big thing coming from a guy who was the manager of ACDC, right? But that it was a way of of you know giving Brian Johnson a platform, setting him up as the new guy, you know, giving him, um, you know, some leverage when yeah. when he started, ra- rather than having you know the ghost of sort of Bon Scott hang over that record in a yeah. a negative way. I can see you that. Know? I, I found it very interesting, too, that you mentioned that um, the uh, Scott family uh, re- receives royalties off of Back in Black, which if that was the case, you know, why would they if, if Bond had nothing to do with the creation of the songs? Well, exactly. So, you know, Vince Lovegrove, who was in The Valentines, who was a good friend of Bond, did, a, did an interview with Bond's brothers before he died where he was told, that the family received royalties for Back in Black. Now, historically, the Young family isn't the most charitable organization in the world. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, why? Why would you give tens of millions, tens, tens of millions of dollars to you know the brothers of someone who was just an employee of yours? And Silver Smith said that when Bond died, that she had had contact with with Bond's mother, and she said, uh, you know, make sure that you get a lawyer. Don't sign anything. Get some advice. You know, and this is all speculation. This is all hypothetical, but everything points to, I think, some some sort of deal being done. And certainly, Vince Lovegrove said, and it was reported in the West Australian newspaper that the family received royalties. Right. So, if that's ongoing, you know, why why is why is that happening? If yeah. Bond had nothing to do with it. Yeah, out of the goodness of their heart, I don't think so. <laughs> Last uh, couple of questions for you here, Jesse. Um, if Bond had not passed away, and you mentioned you think he would have left ACDC, what do you think uh, he would be doing You know, in 2018? Still in the business, solo record, back with ACDC? What do you think? I think he'd be living in the south of France painting. 
<laughs> Probably siring children, sort of a la Anthony Quinn. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Bond uh, definitely had the potential to be uh, like Lemmy and like Keith Richards and a guy in his 70s still living hard and still being, you know, an ultimate rock and roll pirate. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out that way, but still, uh, like I said, one of the greatest singers of all time and one of the greatest guys in in, uh, in, in getting his lyrics across. He, when he sang those lyrics, you really believed that he meant what he said and he was he had experienced those type of things. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's that's the great power of his music and and it's also he's also incredibly funny. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Very funny. You know, really funny guy and uh just, you know, as a as a vocalist, I I just I think he's without peer really. I think he was just you know, the most extraordinary um rock singer of all time and really ultimately this book is a tribute to him there's nothing negative about it i didn't want to kind of bring him down just like i didn't want to bring the youngs down if you're going to set aside five years of your life to yeah to two projects you do it out you do it out of some love you know i'm not getting a lot out of this i'm, I'm doing it because i'm passionate about it yeah both both books are great um and last question for you what's your favorite bon scott song uh give me a bullet oh interesting all right i'm gonna go with riff raff well you can't go wrong with that album exactly man hey jesse thank you so much i'm glad we were able to hook this up man and uh, i appreciate you staying up late uh, in the bond scott late hours of two o'clock and three o'clock in the morning in australia so i appreciate it dude thanks so much thanks again to jesse fink for staying up all night halfway around the world in the spirit of bond scott to do this show all the way from australia don't forget to check out Jesse's book, Bond, The Last Highway, a fascinating read about this subject. You won't be able to put it down once you get started. He really went all out to speak to everybody that he could and gather as much information about Bond's life and times and death as possible. You can get Bond, The Last Highway everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, iBooks, wherever you buy books. Give it a read or listen if you prefer audiobooks. And if you want to discover more about Angus and Malcolm Young, the tribe mentality, the clan mentality that the Youngs uh, always had their entire career. Angus still has it now. Then pick up Jesse's other book, The Youngs, The Brothers Who Built ACDC. You're going to want to see it. And then come see Shoot to Thrill, the world's best female ACDC cover band on Chris Jericho's Rock and Rusty Rager at Sea. What a segue. Book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. And once you do, all the activities on the ship are free. Everything's included in the price of the cabin, even food, uh, live podcasts, concerts, comedy shows, meet and greets, autograph signings, wrestling matches, everything. All you got to pay for are uh, alcohol alcohol and gambling uh, alpha club versus bullet club the bucks of jericho or is it y2 jackson versus kenny omega marty skrull and cody rhodes it's a match you're not going to see anywhere else it's a one time only only on the cruise go check it out don't forget impact versus ring of honor sammy callahan versus marty skrull lax versus the young bucks listen johnny morrison aka johnny mundo aka johnny impact will be on the ship with uh, brian cage and with the lax they all want to take on the bullet club then we got live podcast talk is jericho with ricky the dragon steamboat Talk is Jericho remembering Eddie Guerrero with Conan and Rey Mysterio. Talk is Jericho with the entire Bullet Club. Talk is Jericho with Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. How about Mick Foley doing his 20 Years of Hell stand-up show all about the uh, the trials and tribulations of the uh, classic Hell in the Cell match that he had. 
20 years ago. Beyond the Darkness, scaring the pants off you. Keep it at 100 versus Killing the Town. Don Callis versus Conan. Of course, the first round of the Ring of Honor Sea of Honor tournament has been announced. Lethal versus Whitmer. Daniels versus Delirious. Skrull versus Titus. Young versus Flip Gordon. Bracket B, Mark Briscoe versus Ferrara. Page versus Kazarian. Chibaga versus Beer City Bruiser. Jay Briscoe versus Kenny King. So much going on. Cole Cabana, Marty DeRosa doing the Unprofessional Wrestling Podcast. Kelly Klein, Mandy Leon, uh, uh, Brandy Rhodes will be there. Women of Honor. Lots of uh, great matches from them. Live comedy from Brad Williams. Craig Gass, Ron Funches, the Impractical Jokers will be there with Sal and Q. Corey Taylor from Slipknot will be playing. Fozzie will be doing three shows. Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons. King, The Stir, we're on tour with them right now all across America. The Dave Spivak Project just played a sold-out show in Winnipeg a few weeks ago. Spiwi, uh, the Darlings of Rock and Roll, the Cherry Bombs, Blizzard of Ozzy, the world's best Ozzy Osbourne cover band. SoCal Val, our, guest, our special cruise director. Noel Foley is going to be there hosting. So much going on. Book your cabin now at chrisjerichocruise.com and be a part of history. Speaking of history, August 9th, 1999, just over 19 years ago, was the debut of Y2J. And uh, Conrad Thompson returns. We're talking all about the countdown to Y2J, all the events that led to my uh, monumental historical debut up to and including that fateful Raw on August 9th, 1999. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a great one. So we'll see you on Friday. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big year, boy.